I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you, king over his people, Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now, go. Attack the Amalekites and totally destroy them. Everything that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. So Saul summoned the men and mustered them at Tel Aim. 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men from Judah. Saul went to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the ravine. Then he said to the Kenites, go away, leave the Amalekites so that I do not destroy you along with them. For you showed kindness to all the Israelites when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites moved away from the Amalekites. Then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur, to the east of Egypt. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive, and all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag, and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely. But everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I am grieved that I have made Saul king, because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was troubled, and he cried out to the Lord all that night. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul, but he was told, Saul has gone to Carmel, there he has set up a monument in his own honour and has turned and gone down to Gilgal. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. But Samuel said, What then? Is this bleating of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul answered, The soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But we totally destroyed the rest. Stop. Samuel said to Saul, let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. Samuel said, although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel and he sent you on a mission saying, go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Make war on them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of, of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. But Samuel replied, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Then Saul said to Samuel, 
I have sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the people and so I gave in to them. Now I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to him, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord. And the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. As Samuel turned to leave, Saul caught hold of the hem of his robe and it tore. Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbours, to one better than you. He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. Saul replied, I have sinned, but please honour me before the elders of my people and before Israel. Come back with me so that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel went back with Saul and Saul worshipped the Lord. Then Samuel said, bring me Agag, king of the Amalekites. Agag came to him confidently, thinking, surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so will your mother be childless among women. And Samuel put Agag to death before the Lord at Gilgal. Then Samuel left for Ramah, but Saul went up to his home in Gibeah of Saul. Until the day Samuel died, he did not go to see Saul again, though Samuel mourned for him. And the Lord was grieved that he had made Saul king over Israel. The great Latin theologian and writer Tertullian once wrote that the faithful are not ashamed that Christ was crucified. Now when he wrote that, that was an extraordinary thing to write. An extraordinary thing to write. Seneca wrote that suicide was most certainly to be preferred to crucifixion. If in any way you had the choice, you should take the disgraceful and cowardly way out of taking your own life rather than facing the utter disgrace of a cross. To be crucified... No, even to carry a cross was a sign of the utmost shame and disgrace. There was no worse stigma you could bear even than to carry a cross. When a great Roman senator was found guilty of treason, Cicero said that the word cross should be far from the... What, from the mouth, no, even from the mind of any Roman. No Roman citizen could be crucified, only non-people, non-citizens, people whose lives did not count, could be crucified. Think cross, think gas chamber, a place for non-people whose lives are worth nothing. And Tertullian said, Christians are not ashamed that Christ was crucified. Well, in the Roman and Greek worlds, it was a disgrace. In the Jewish world, so too. Because the Bible tells us that cursed is anyone who is hung on a tree. (coughs) But Tertullian said, the faithful are not ashamed that Christ was crucified. 
Well, fast forward 2,000 years and go into any jewellers. What will you find? Crosses. Thousands of them. The cross has become a commonplace thing, not something to be ashamed of. How could Christians be ashamed that Christ was crucified? You know, it is the most common emblem you can find. In fact, if you Google crucifix, pretty much the first result you find is for a place that sells kind of gem-studded crosses. And the strap line of the webpage, a thing of beauty is a joy forever. It's what the cross has become. A thing of beauty, a thing of decoration. You know, I'm sure you've heard the stories of people going into a jeweler's and they, and they say, I'd like to buy a cross for my girlfriend or uh, whatever as a necklace. And the person behind the counter says, absolutely, that's fine. Um, now, we've got two different kinds. Do you want one with or without a little diver? The cross has become something that has been robbed of its shame and its significance. So would Tertullian be able to say without any fear of contradiction, the faithful are not ashamed that Christ was crucified? Well, I wonder. I wonder. Because what is the shame of the cross today? Not the symbolism, sure, no, the symbolism has been domesticated. But what is the temptation for believers today to be ashamed of the cross of Christ? I recently ran my first marathon, and I know that amongst some of you that makes me very much a newbie. You know, very much at the bottom of the pile. But, you know, it was kind of fun. And, and I've discovered lots of things through starting to take up running. And one of them is that running delivers a lot of the things that church is supposed to. Okay? I'm not ashamed to say that. Running makes you feel good. I think it's a much better cure for depression than anything else I've ever come across. Running makes you feel great. Okay? It helps you to be healthy. It'll make you live longer. Well, most of us. It makes you part of a community. So there I am running around the marathon. I'm in a lot of pain. You know, I must be looking awful. I'm high-fiving kids, all I? <laughs> People are shouting my name because it's written on my, you know, on my, on my number. People shout, come on, Nick! I'm going, yes. Thank you. Yeah. You know, I look like I'm about to die, but thank you very much indeed. And I feel for that moment like I am part of this great community and that everyone loves each other. And I get to the end, and there's just this sense that, you know, everyone's in it together, and it's this lovely, lovely feeling. And then you read books about running, and you realize people talk about running in the way that some people talk about Jesus. A guy called Dean Karnazes, who read a book called 50-50. Dean Karnazes ran 50 marathons in 50 days in 50 different states in the United States. And he ran marathons with groups of people every day during that 50 days. And he has stories of what people went through and what they felt they achieved in that process. And at one point he said, running is not about exercise. Running is about salvation. And that is, the, that is how people feel about it. And that is their experience of it. And then you look and you think, well, what kind of things do we so often want to say to people about being a Christian and about being part of the church and about Jesus? We want to say, you know, Jesus will help you feel better. And you can be part of a great community. And you can be loved. And I want to say, all of that is true. 
all of that is true. But you can get all of that at your local running club. What is it that Jesus offers you that Nike cannot? Why is it that we might want to play up some of the peripheral things that Jesus offers rather than the cross? That's why we go with Samuel to the rejection of Saul as king and to the destruction of the Amalekites. This will help us to understand why we might be ashamed of the cross, but why the cross is absolutely the thing we need. So in fact, come back with me before chapter 15 to chapter 8 of 1 Samuel. So um, just to give you a kind of very much bird's eye view and, and a very high flying eagle's view of the story so far. God has made a world, he's made a man and a woman, they have rebelled against him. He's cast them out of his garden, but he has a plan to put things right. And in chapter 12 of the book of Genesis, he explains that plan, he's going to do it all through a family, he's going to do it through the family of Abraham. And he's going to give them a place to live, he's going to make them into a great nation and he is going to bless them. And so they end up uh, in, in Egypt because of a famine and they end up as slaves in Egypt because the Egyptians forget what great people they are and how God has blessed them. And in the end, God sets them free from slavery in Egypt and takes them via some wanderings in the wilderness into that land that he promised to Abraham. Hundreds of years later, but nonetheless, he fulfills his promise. And he takes that great people that have become a great nation and he puts them in that land. But as they live in that land, their life is one that is continually this cycle of violence with their neighbours and with each other. And in the book of Judges, we keep seeing how God has to send someone in to sort out the mess, to rescue them, to judge Israel, to fight against their enemies. And once there's peace in the land, the people just forget about God again. And the whole cycle starts again. And so you get to the beginning of, of, of 1 Samuel, and there's this great prophet Eli. And things look like they should be sort of settled down in the land. But Eli's sons are reprobates and things go wrong. But God provides Samuel, this great judge of Israel, the last of the great judges, the one who is, uh, who is able to rule over Israel in a way that helps them to submit to God and safe from their enemies but then in chapter 8 we begin to see that things aren't going so well even Samuel's sons are beginning to be um, corrupt so verse 5 we hear Samuel you're old, your sons don't walk in your ways, now appoint a king to lead us such as all the other nations have and that says it all doesn't it We, God's special people, want a king so we can be like all the other nations. We want to be like the other nations, Samuel. And so God says, verse 7, Samuel, listen to all the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me 
as their king. So, verse 19, the people refused to listen to Samuel as he warned them what the king would be like. No. They said, we want a king over us. Then we shall be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and go out before us and fight our battles. Who is the one who leads Israel, who goes out before Israel, who fights their battles? It's God. It's meant to be. They say, no, give us a king. Give us a king. Give us a king. And someone says, but the king will... No, give us a king. And so God gives them a king. And the king he gives them is tall and buff and handsome and leads and fights. He's everything they asked for. But you know from reading chapter 8 that it is going to be a car crash. And here we go. Straight through the central reservation in chapter 15. Where God rejects Saul as king and tears the kingship from him. What is going on? Why has is, why is this happened? What is the problem? Well, we read in verse 11 that Saul is building monuments to himself. Now, if you don't, don't flick back there now, but just make a note to look back to chapter 7, where Samuel, after a great victory, sets up a stone. He calls it Ebenezer, the stone of help, for God has helped us thus far. Saul goes, he fights the Amalekites, he destroys them. And he builds a monument to himself. That's the shift in his thinking and in Israel's thinking. Saul has taken the place in his own heart as well as in the heart of the people that belongs only to God. So God says, verse 12, sorry, verse 11, he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. He's turned back from following me. Now, how is it that Saul has demonstrated this turning back from following God? Well, yes, the building of a monument to himself. But actually, in what he's done, in fulfilling what God has called him to do, God says, I want you to go and destroy the Amalekites. And we'll talk about uh, that command. It's a, it's a very distressing one. He says, go kill them, kill the mums, kill the dads, kill the children, kill the babies, kill the animals. It's a horrific thing that Saul is asked to do. And he doesn't go through with it. But you need to see that what Saul doesn't go through with is not the bit that we find difficult. What Saul doesn't go through with is he doesn't kill the king. And he doesn't kill anything that's worth anything. Say so the fat cows and the, and, the, and, the, and, the, and the valuable sheep. Everything that was good... These they were unwilling to destroy completely. Verse 9. But everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. So here we go. God has called on us all to do something difficult. The, the hard bit he's done. But the stuff he wanted for himself, that he would not destroy. The stuff that had value to him, kept 
Now, perhaps we look at it and we think, well, that doesn't look that dreadful. You know, he's done almost everything God asked him to do. But then you look at Saul's rationalisation. He comes to Samuel. He says, look, I've done it. I've done what, I've done, I've done what God said. Yay me. <coughs> Monument. And Samuel says, um, I hate to mention this, but it does sound quite like a farmyard. You know what's going on? And so we go, oh, that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, well, um, you know, we brought the best stuff back to sacrifice to the Lord your God. He's rationalised his disobedience. Yeah, yeah. I've done what God asked. No, you haven't, says Samuel. Well, no, I haven't, but, you know, I had good reason, says Saul. And say verse 16, Samuel just says, look, let's put an end to this. And I'll tell you what God said to me before I even heard the sheep bleating. You used to be small in your own eyes, right? Now you're building monuments to yourself. God told you to do one thing and you did something else. And what you did was you got your soul, you pounced on the plunder, and in doing so you did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Rebellion, verse 23, is like the sin of divination and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. You have rejected the word of the Lord. Just think about that for a moment. Saul has failed in a detail of what God asked him to do. And God says to him, what you have done is like becoming a witch. You have joined the church of Satan. Rebellion is like divination. It is like conjuring up spirits. Now, the really striking thing is that the next conversation Saul has with Samuel is at the house of a witch in Endor. After Samuel has died, he goes and he calls on that witch to summon Samuel up. And they have the same conversation again. This is not theory that rebellion is like divination. For Saul, they are the same thing. They, they, they become the same thing. He, it, he, what he does now is equivalent to what he does later in his life when he is desperate, when he cannot get a word from God. He says, I'll go and ask Samuel, who's already died. Saul has put himself in the place of God. And so, when God speaks, he recasts the word in ways that suit himself. Destroys what's useless, keeps what's valuable. Because he has got his own purposes. <coughs> and it doesn't matter what God says. Saul knows what he wants to do. And Saul is like a microcosm of the people at that point. They don't want God as king. They want to be like the nation's. Saul doesn't want God as king. He wants to do what he wants. And what does God think about it? God thinks it is as bad as it gets. This is like idolatry. This is like worshipping foreign gods. Like the god Molech who asks you to pass your children through the fire. That is to sacrifice babies. God says, 
recasting his word and doing what you want, even while you pretend it's obedience. That's the same. That's the same. Now that's important for us in terms of understanding what kind of king we really need. Because we need a king who's not like us. We need a king who's not like Saul. We need a king who is not disobedient to the word of God. Because a king who is like us will ruin us as Saul ruined Israel. And much more importantly, a king who is not obedient is not acceptable to God. So I think it's very easy for us to start to think, like Saul does, that God's standards are somehow flexible. <clears throat> things that we can talk our way around. No, no, Samuel, look, it's all right. I've, I, I thought about it and I had a better idea. Easy for us to think like that, isn't it? All too easy. And yet the important thing is that God tells us it won't do. His standards aren't flexible. We can't talk our way around them. So look what happens in verse 24. Saul says to Samuel, and perhaps you recognise this attitude, Saul realises that he's in a corner he can't get out of, says, okay, well, at this point, I'm sorry, I sinned, I messed up. I was afraid of the people. Now, please, forgive me, and let's go. And we'll go, and I'll worship the Lord, and everything will be fine. And Samuel says, no, it won't. It will not. It won't. I won't go with you. And, and, and Saul tries to take matters into his own hands again. He grabs Samuel's robe and says, no, I'm not going anywhere. And Samuel just walks and his robe rips and he says, I told you, look, it's ripped. It's gone from you. You will not change God's mind. God's judgment on sin will not be turned back. It, it is there. It is forever. It is forever. You have lost the kingship, Saul. God spoke, you disobeyed, that is it. You are done. Just cast your mind back to a garden sometime before. And God puts Adam and Eve in a garden that is beautiful and is full of trees that are Bearing fruit that are beautiful to the eye and pleasing to the eye and good for food. And God says to them, look, there's that one tree and you don't touch it. Okay? Well, actually he doesn't say that, does he? He says, don't eat the fruit. Don't eat the fruit. The day you eat of it, you shall die. And some wise talking serpent comes along and persuades them that, that that's flexible. And they do something that seems insignificant. They reach out. And they take that fruit. What are the consequences of that seemingly insignificant action? So far. 109 billion deaths. Every human being 
born since then has died because of that one action of rebellion. That is how serious it is to rebel against the word of God, to, to hear what God says and say, no, I'm going to do things my own way. I'm going to go my own way. You need a king who is obedient in everything. The king who replaces Saul is so much better, isn't he? David, a man after God's own heart. But David, where does his life end up? It ends up in the bed of Bathsheba, the wife of someone in his army, who he then has killed. Even in the heart of David, that rebellion against God's right command rules. He is captive to it. We need a king who is obedient. And when you come to the New Testament, one of the things that is really focused on when it comes to the cross is Jesus' obedience. Think about Philippians chapter 2. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus' obedience took him to that place. The cross is about Jesus being obedient where we have failed to be obedient. So in fact, in, in, the, in the second century, a theologian called Irenaeus of Lyon wrote a book um, basically <coughs> describing the Christian message. And he, he, he said, look, at the cross... Here is Jesus' act of obedience that cancels out the other act of disobedience. Disobedience with a tree. Obedience at the tree. And what Jesus is doing here puts right what went wrong there. You need a king who is obedient. But you need a king who is able to deal with the judgment that sin brings. Saul's repentance can change nothing. God doesn't change his mind, says Samuel. Verse 29, God is not a mortal. He is not a man that he should change his mind. We need a king who can deal with God's judgment on sin. One who is obedient. And one who can deal with the consequences that we all rightly face for our rebellion. Because to go against the word of, the, of God is as bad as it is, as it can be. It's as bad as it gets. Okay? Now, I think we perhaps don't understand that. And we need to just take a step back and be confronted again with who God really is. Okay? To break God's word is the worst thing you can do. There is no worse sin than to disobey. And the awfulness of any sin you might commit is awful first because it's a rebellion against God. Now that doesn't, that doesn't go with the grain for us. We find that really, really hard to swallow. So we find the destruction of the Amalekites really difficult, don't we? You read God commanding Saul through Samuel to go and put to death all the children of the Amalekites. And you go, yes, amen, that is right, don't you? No, you don't. You find it really, really hard to swallow. 
But God's judgment is that horrific. Why do we find it so hard to accept? Well, partly because we're people made in the image of God and we have compassion on other human beings. And the thought of a whole people being wiped out is, well, because of recent history in the 20th century, partly, where human beings took it on themselves to do that sort of thing, is horrific. But also just because we have compassion and, and we, you know, we have fellow feeling for fellow human beings. It's, it's a hard thing for us to, to, to accept. But in the end, it's a hard thing for us to accept because we want what's right to be on the basis of what we feel is right, not on the basis of what God says is right. Now, this is going to sound really obvious, but one of the things you're going to have to learn to live with as a Christian is that God's got a God complex. Okay? He actually thinks that he's God he really believes that he is the most important person in the universe he really believes that what he says is right is right and what he says is wrong is wrong and that that's as far as it goes he really believes that and that's actually hard for us to accept because deep down we don't want to accept that we're creatures we don't want to accept that someone else gets to define who we are and what's right and wrong that taking of a piece of fruit wasn't just taking a piece of fruit. It wasn't just a mid-morning snack. It was a rejection of God's right as our creator. To define us. You know, most of us have been told from an early age, you can be whatever you want to be. What, what, what do you want to be? Be that. <coughs> God says, I've made you to be something. And you are that. You are a human being. You live in my world. You live by my rules. That's that. I find that hard. God's got a God complex. And we can be casual, like Saul was casual with God, and think that God's flexible, that God is nice and will do what we want him to do. It's a terrifying moment for Saul, isn't it, when actually his wafer-thin repentance is rejected in verse 24. Okay, yeah, I got it wrong. Let's move on. Shall we just put this behind us? And Sam says, no, there is no putting this behind you. The Bible tells us very clearly that there is no putting sin behind you. There is no just, okay, let's move on. That's, it doesn't matter. We'll pretend it didn't happen. We're going to look at uh, this chapter more fully tomorrow but would you turn with me to 1 John chapter 1 and verse 5 so 1 John's almost at the very back of your Bible so you get to Revelation you've gone too far just flick back a few pages you'll get there let me just read to you 1 John chapter 1 verse 5 this is the message we've heard from him and declare to you God is light in him there is no darkness at all if we claim to have fellowship with him yet walk in the darkness we lie and do not live by the truth God is light God is holy let me tell you what happened when John the person who wrote that met his friend Jesus after his resurrection and ascension 
You can read about it in the first chapter of the book of Revelation. John, the man against whom Jesus leant at the Last Supper, who was described as the disciple that Jesus loved, he meets Jesus in his glorified state. He sees him for who he is. And what does John do? He falls on the floor like a dead man. God's holiness is utter. His his perfection, his moral perfection, his light, in the terms he puts it in 1 John. God is so purely and perfectly, morally upright and holy that his holiness is searing and will destroy any impurity that gets in its way. So think about as the Israelites are wandering in the wilderness and they come to this mountain where God is going to meet with them and give them his law. This is how you shall live as my people. Now that I've rescued you, you can live with me. He takes them to a mountain. And he appears at the top of the mountain. And what does he say to the people? If anyone even touches the mountain that I'm appearing at the top of, if anyone even touches that whole mountain, they die. Because that's how holy I am. He then builds, the book of Exodus is basically a book about how it is that God can live with sinful people. And the climax of the book of Exodus is they build this special tent where God can be and still be with them. And basically, it's a matter of um, creating a series of barriers. So you can come into the, to the main court and then there's a bit that only a few people can go into. And then you get closer and closer in. And then you get to the place where God's glory will be revealed. And there is one person from the whole people. Was that you? <laughs> there is one person from the whole people of Israel who is ever allowed to go into that room. One. Okay? He gets in once a year. Right? And when he goes in, he's got a, he's got a rope tied around him. This is the high priest. Okay? He's got a rope tied around him. He's covered in bells. Why is he covered in bells? Is he going to Morris dance afterwards? No. He's covered in bells because when he goes in and he's moving, you can hear him jingling. And he stops jingling and you haul him out as quick as you can because he might have been struck dead by the glory of the living God. Okay? That is who we are dealing with. God is not tame. God is not safe. God is not understanding. He is holy. He is perfect. He is pure. He is terrifyingly great. And Saul forgot that and found himself clutching a piece of torn material that represented not just his kingdom but his life. That is why Jesus can offer you what a running club can't. Because Jesus is the obedient one. Jesus is the holy one who can come and deal with that problem. Okay? The problem of God's anger with your sin is the one thing in your life that you will never talk your way around, that you will never work your way around, that you will never pay off by trying specially hard. Only the one perfect obedient king can 
do that for you. That's what we're going to talk about in the next session as we come to talk about the cross itself. You may have been surprised that we started with the Amalekites when we were supposed to be talking about the cross, but can you see why? Why might a Christian today be ashamed of the cross? Why might Tertullian need to say to us, no, no, faithful, do not be ashamed of the cross. Do not be ashamed that Jesus Christ was crucified. We live in a world where the idea that God might be angry with us because of our sin, that God might dare to even think of destroying us because of our sin, is a totally unacceptable idea. The idea that Jesus was crucified because of what I have done wrong is not an acceptable idea today in the way that the idea that God could be crucified was an unbelievable idea in Jesus' own day. The shock of the cross now is not that someone like Jesus could be crucified and go through something like that. The shock of the cross today is that God is not tame that God is not safe, that God is angry with sin, that God will punish it, that those 109 billion people who have died so far in the history of the world have died because of sin. There has not been an innocent death. Not one. Because sin is so terrible. Because rebellion against sin is like witchcraft, like worshipping false gods. That, today, is the offence of the cross. That is the thing we're tempted to back away from and move on to, well, you know, look, Jesus can make you a nicer person. He can, you know, he can help you to be the person you want to be. Jesus can make you feel good about yourself. He can make you part of a community that will love you. All of those things are true, to some extent. But none of them gets close to handling the problem that we have with the God of 1 Samuel 15. to handling the fact that we've got a God who has a God complex. But guess what? We don't have him. He has us. He's the one who does the defining. We live in his world. It's a problem you can't escape. The cross is the only solution to that problem. Now, we've got 30 seconds. If there are any questions, um, otherwise I'll pray. Or perhaps we can take some questions at the end of the next session. Uh, anything burning? No? Good, you're all in shock. Let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you that you are who you are. In the end, Father God, we thank you that you are a God who doesn't bend to our whims. He's not shaped by wicked, selfish, self-seeking people, but is a God who defines himself and who defines us. We thank you because that is the sort of God that we need, because we are creatures. And we belong to you. And Father, as we see the horror of sin, just for a fraction of what it is, we are sorry. We know that perhaps even this morning, we've been guilty of that rebellion, that rejection of your word that is like the worst sense of divination and idolatry. And we acknowledge, Father God, that there is nothing we can do about them. We thank you that you have provided for us in Jesus the answer to that, our real, our deep, our abiding problem. And we pray that in your mercy as we come to think about his cross, that you will fill us with delight and wonder at his goodness. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've uh, come to a break now, so... <clears throat>